Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The Horn of Africa region, which includes parts of Somalia, Kenya, and Ethiopia, is experiencing a drought. Now, this region has been particularly vulnerable to droughts in recent years, and to be honest, this was not a situation that I was following particularly closely. That was until I received an email from a contact who laid out some data around this drought that gave me great pause. So, uh, first, a little background. In the summer of 2011, there was a similar drought in the region, but warnings about the humanitarian consequences of this drought went largely unheeded until the drought led to a famine, the first of the 21st century. Over the subsequent weeks and months, over 250,000 people died, making this famine one of the worst mass atrocity events of the decade. That was 2011. In 2017, there was another drought, but this time the international community and also the governments of the region responded and were able to provide humanitarian assistance and other aid and interventions that prevented the tragedy of 2011 from being repeated in 2017. So that is all some recent historic background and context to the email that landed in my inbox, which was from Oxfam. And this email compared data around the humanitarian response in 2011 to the response to the current ongoing drought. And that showed that compared to 2011, the humanitarian needs today are greater and the international response far less robust. This, of course, suggests that unless something changes, the current drought could lead to another devastating famine. On the line with me to discuss the current humanitarian situation in the Horn of Africa is Dustin Barter, the regional drought policy and advocacy lead for Oxfam. He's authored a report comparing the impact of the 2011, 2017, and current droughts and the international humanitarian response. And in this conversation, we discuss both what is happening today, what happened two years ago and in 2011, and what the international community can do to prevent the worst case scenario from repeating itself in this region. So one just quick thing I wanted to say before the episode starts, this is a mission-driven podcast. You know, what I seek to do is bring in-depth analysis and conversations about critical global issues that do not get the attention or play they deserve anywhere else in the media, in the press. And this is certainly one of those issues. This episode is a good manifestation of what I am trying to do with this podcast. So if you want to support that mission, if you recognize that there's no other podcast out there, let alone uh, other major media outlets that will devote this kind of attention on an issue like this ongoing drought in the Horn of Africa, then please support the show. You can do so by becoming a premium subscriber and unlock a whole bunch of rewards for yourself in the process. Go to patreon.com slash global dispatches to support the show and unlock your rewards. 
You can also follow the links in the description field of this podcast episode, wherever you're listening to it, or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. And if you have questions about premium subscribership, premium membership, uh, please just send me an email and you can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you. And now here is my conversation with Dustin Barter of Oxfam. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So currently, yeah, we're experiencing a very severe drought in the Horn, particularly impacting Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia and Somaliland, where it's affecting over 15.3 million people in need of humanitarian assistance. And the drought comes very quickly after the 2017 drought that it kind of devastated a lot of the area as well. So we see in the first six months of 2019, there's been a steep rise in the amount of people needing humanitarian assistance as water levels drop, uh, livestock uh, continue to um, be malnourished and we see people really struggling to kind of survive with the current drought situation. So there's been a lot of um, shift in trying to raise the profile of this this humanitarian crisis. But since it's happened so recently, since the 2017 drought, there's kind of been a lack of uh, mobilization and attention to how severe the actual situation is, which continues deteriorating very quickly. I can attest to that. I mean, you know, I, I kind of cover these issues very regularly, and the current drought crisis in the Horn of Africa is not something that was on my radar before this conversation. Yeah, definitely. It's it's really hard to gain traction within uh, the region, but also globally, because there, cri- the cri- drought crises are happening so often, and it kind of goes off the radar. It's hard to get a new hook on why this is an urgent pressing issue. Yet in the first six months of this year, the humanitarian numbers have increased dramatically and funding has been really stifled. Um, yet we've learned from, from previous responses in, in the 2011, uh, there was a, a massive drought and the response was slow and insufficiently funded and it resulted in famine with over 260,000 people dying in Somalia. Uh, learning from 2011, we shifted to 2017 when a drought once again struck and the response with 2011 fresh in the mind, the response was very timely, very well resourced and averted the worst impacts of the drought crisis. So we're now kind of at this juncture, 2019, not many people are listening and we're asking the question, are we headed again towards a 2011 disaster or are we going to collectively respond in a positive way as we did in 2017. Yeah, it seems that the, the pendulum is, is sadly swinging back, it, it seems. Um, how is this drought affecting the lives and livelihoods of the 15.3 million people that are impacted by it? It's extremely devastating across the, the three countries that 
um, I don't know, I come from Australia and we have a bit of a saying that, you know, you can you can grow things out of mud, but you can't make anything out of dust. And that's kind of the reality a lot of communities are facing, that drought is just really depleting the, the resources of the land. And, you know, the 2017 drought was so recent that nobody has really effectively recovered since 2017. So in 2017, people lost millions of livestock, uh, often entire herds. So you see 2019, the impact is is very severe because um, people just don't have livestock and haven't recovered from, from two years ago. So I spoke not long ago with a woman called Halimo in, in uh, Somaliland, and she kind of talked about um, recent rains and the international community and others like, oh, cool, rain, rain has come. The situation must be getting better. But as she kind of explained, she said, well, you know, there's been rain, but who wants to eat grass? And this is a very strong reference to the fact that her and many other people have no livestock. So even if there is a bit of rain, a bit of fresh pasture, there's actually no animals to make the benefit from that rain. So it's it's a very precarious situation. You know, people are scrambling to just get sufficient water that is potable, uh, drinkable uh, water to save their livestock. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, forced uh, displacement because people are having to come to urban centers or wherever they can access water. You know, this often involves like going through some very dangerous um, locations with you know, significant security and protection risks. So when we talk about, you know, the protection of civilians and a lot of this uh, wanting to ensure security and safety, drought is actually a major dri driver of risk in a lot of these contexts because people are forced to kind of migrate through across uh, very, very risky areas or to new areas that they are unfamiliar with and put themselves um, at a lot of risk of of insecurity and other problems. Um, this is particularly acute for, for women and children, where you'll find maybe men are traveling off to try and find some new work or form of income, and then women are often burdened with uh, all the childcare duties, extended duties from trying to put together any income they can, such as collecting firewood, the struggle to collect water. It just kind of compounds all these challenges over and over for for women for children particularly so there's a, there's a diverse array of impacts and you see food prices starting to grow go up as well because agricultural production has been really decimated as well so if you haven't lost if you have lost your livestock you're then also facing higher costs for your basic needs because there's less food available generally so you know so the the Sorry. I mean, it, well, is is there like that direct line between a drought and a rise in food prices? Uh, very often there's a very direct correlation. As soon as cereals and other food production diminishes, the, the demand is still there and the prices increase quite quickly. And, you know, this must be put in like a more regional and uh, continental and global context that drought and agricultural production is really being impacted by the climate crisis at a global scale. And so you're seeing a lot of fluctuations at the local level, but also internationally. So there's some recent uh, article looking at, you know, there's 45 million people in need of humanitarian assistance across 14 uh, Eastern and Southern African nations. So the Horn of Africa is part of this broader drought climate crisis context where prices of food are fluctuating. Uh, there's continued instability in the weather. And as we see, it's 
the, it's the most vulnerable communities in every country and, and in the world that are facing the most severe impacts. So, you know, the people with more money, they just pay a bit extra for food. But those who are already struggling to survive, even a you know, 5%, 10% increase in food prices has a dramatic impact. And you referenced this earlier, but I think an important um, context in which to understand any drought in the Horn of Africa is that 2011 drought that led to famine in Somalia that, you know, I don't think it's emphasized enough that people sort of realize just how profoundly devastating that famine was. You said something like 230,000 or so people were killed uh, in this famine, which occurred also in the context of some insecurity in, in Somalia, um, you know, making it probably one of the worst mass death events, mass atrocity events of the 21st century. Um, can you describe what led to that event in, in 2011? And if you're seeing any similar parallels today? Sure. So what, what unfolded in 2011 was absolutely catastrophic. And Oxfam and many other actors have reflected on our on our process at that time and recognized there was a severe failure of the international system, the international humanitarian and national humanitarian architecture. So what unfolded, and I did this during the research for the report we've just released, Committed or Complacent, a failing response to the 2019 drought, is that in 2011, there were some early warnings, but it was only around June that people were like, oh, the situation is getting bad. Early July, people were saying it's getting really bad. By the end of July, famine was already declared, kind of showing drought we see as a slow onset disaster, but the situation turned very, very quickly just because of the severe vulnerability of communities. So, and maybe it's worth just sort of pointing out, and, and sorry to interrupt, that famine in the context of like UN conversations and international humanitarian relief conversations doesn't just mean people lack food. Uh, it's actually like a certain specific threshold that the UN and other organizations use to determine uh, why people are dying because of lack of food uh, in terms of like child mortality has to reach a certain uh, level and, and other sort of malnutrition levels have to be met. Can you just sort of describe what that famine threshold means? Sure. So famine, as you're saying, refers to issues around uh, malnourishment rates of children, also level of food insecurity and a bunch of other indicators that, once you get to the point of famine being declared, you know, things have really hit the roof. It means there's basically mass deaths already happening from food security. So there's a lot of technical processes for it to go through, and it's usually up to the UN to declare when a famine has hit. Uh, so it, it is very strict uh, definition because we don't want to be seen as crying wolf or raising the, the risk of famine without that actually being the severity of the situation. Um, but as we saw, so 2011, famine was declared quite quickly after al alarms were being raised, and the result was 260,000 people died, which is phenomenal. Even if you look at a lot of the other armed conflicts and other issues going on around the world, even in the 21st century, 260,000 people dying is an absolute catastrophe. It's, it's horrific. And after 2011, the international community 
as we've often said, we've said never again. We will never let this happen again. And so you asked where are we sitting in 2019. So the, this, the funding situation is actually less than 2011, but the humanitarian need is more than 50% more. So we don't want to be seen as crying wolf or using the word famine at this point because that is a very uh, significant moment to be making a warning of that. But the situation now looks very, very bleak. So is perhaps, may I ask, is, is perhaps one key difference between now and 2011 that, um, you know, in 2011, you had that Al-Shabaab insurgency that was raging in parts of Somalia, most affected by uh, the drought that, that turned suddenly to famine. You don't have that same level of insecurity. So is that perhaps one indicator that might um, augur against sort of a worst case scenario from from unfolding? So the security situation, particularly in Somalia, is is vastly improved since since 2011. That's that's for sure. Uh, but you also still face extreme insecurity within certain parts of Somalia, and humanitarian access is very limited. So there's still a lot of attacks, a lot of uh, restrictions and challenges for the delivery of humanitarian aid. A lot of these restrictions and challenges are particularly placed on local actors who are at the forefront of delivering assistance to the most hard-to-reach places. You know, there's there's a vibrant civil society in in Somalia, in, in Kenya, in Ethiopia that are delivering aid in particularly challenging circumstances. So while the situation is perhaps improved in terms of 2011, everybody's resources are so stretched currently that to be able to deliver the, the level of assistance to the amount of people that is needed is is extremely constrained as it is. So... Security may have improved, but if you don't have the resources to actually deliver aid, then you're really going to struggle. Uh, and you also mentioned that uh, as a consequence of um, some kind of soul searching and also some just you know recognizing how the international community failed Somalia in 2011, in 2017, during the last drought, the response was relatively robust. Can you talk a little bit about how that response prevented, you know, worst case scenarios from, from befalling the region? So 2017 was, was marked by mass mobilization of political will and, and financial resources. So a lot of the usual suspects such as EU, UK, US were very instrumental in mobilizing funding but also the governments of the different countries, so Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia were very active. The African Union and the uh, International uh, International Governmental Agency for Development, IGAD, in the Horn of Africa, was also very active in kind of mobilizing funding. You even saw the private sector kind of raising the alarm and also contributing funding in 2017. So there was this kind of mass widespread commitment from all different actors to get the political attention and get the action happening. And most importantly, the, the resources were flowing freely so that people could respond in a timely fashion. And we know like early intervention is much more economical for, for saving lives. It's much more uh, practical and, and much more effective in saving lives. For example, if you reach somebody with, with a cash grant at an early stage enabling them to buy food, they avert the worst impacts of malnutrition. And then if you don't do that and you reach them later and have to, you know, use therapeutic feeding and other processes to improve their nutrition, it's actually far more expensive to act 
later. So this this early warning, early response is really, really critical. Uh, and, and so you mentioned that compared to 2011, before the, the famine was declared, right now the needs are greater and the funding is less robust. Can you talk a little bit about what that funding gap is right now? Sure. So if we look at so the figures we've put in the report, uh, for 2011, there was 9.8 million people in need during uh, June, July. The current figure is 15.3 million, so over 50% more people needing humanitarian assistance. Uh, if we look at the funding in 2011, it was 46.5% funded. That is, the humanitarian response plans uh, were 46.5% funded. Whereas if we look now at 2019, these same response plans are only 35.4% funded. And what does that look like in dollar terms? It means there's a $1.5 billion funding gap for Ethiopia and Somalia, which is an enormous gap. And, you know, we maybe the humanitarian architecture has become more efficient. Maybe the security situation has improved. But if you have a funding gap of 65%, $1.5 billion, how much can we actually do? How many lives can you save if you don't have the resources to actually do it? Um, whereas we look at 2017 is is much better. At this point, it was about 75% funded um, with only a gap of 500 million, still big, but nothing on the, the situation for 2019. So uh, I think it's also really important that uh, Oxfam and uh, a lot of humanitarian responders don't want to be seen as continually asking for money. But what we also need to recognize is compared to 2011 and earlier, that the, the Kenyan government has taken on a much more proactive role in delivering humanitarian assistance, now leading most of the response in their country. In 2019, the Ethiopian government is funding nearly 50% of the humanitarian response plan. So you see national governments have kind of stepped up quite a bit. They can definitely do more, and I think we need to advocate for this reaching the most marginalized groups and ensuring national governments are address, addressing you know, various levels of marginalization and inequality. But the international community needs to recognize these governments have done a lot, but they are severely resource constrained. And we need to really step up the game, particularly this, this needs to be situated in the broader climate crisis context, because it's not, it's not just a drought. This is the, the new reality of the climate crisis where the richest countries have contributed the most towards this crisis happening. And it's a bit rich of us to just say, oh, we're sick of funding humanitarian responses when we've benefited so economically from the vast emissions we've contributed. And now, you know, we're looking at before it was talking about future scenarios of the climate crisis, whereas those scenarios are very much here and now. The, the Horn of Africa is the canary in the coal mine of, of the climate crisis impacts as much as sinking islands in the Pacific. And we need to kind of look at this broader reality and go, okay, this isn't just a matter of immediate humanitarian response, which is critical, but we also need to look at what does broader climate change adaptation and long-term resilience look like. And we need to have those kind of systemic solutions, not just humanitarian response after humanitarian response. And the question is, where, where does the international community stand on this? You know, we need to be taking more coherent, longer-term action there's been significant investments in resilience that have been quite effective and much more effective 
in, in terms of cost effectiveness compared to response. But we need to look at much bigger picture because the, the climate crisis realities are very much here. Uh, but I, I guess maybe in, in the short term, if that funding gap, that $1.5 billion funding gap you cited is not closed, uh, what are the prospects of chances that a famine might befall this region again? There are predictions for the coming months that the situation will deteriorate. There's been some rain within recent months, but as I was saying, that has had a limited kind of benefit for a lot of communities. So people, including myself and Oxfam, are quite reluctant to be seen as crying wolf and saying, you know, famine is, is likely or quite possible. So I'm reluctant to say something specifically, but if you look at the numbers and look at the need, you know, without famine or no famine, people are extremely vulnerable and really facing immense risks. And compared to even 2017, the issue is resilience is far, far lower because people haven't recovered. So without using, using the F word, the, the risk and the severity of the situation is immense and is enough to call for action. You know, often we have warning signs and then famine has happened and it's too late. So we know early response is, is best and we know it's most cost effective. And and then finally, on, on the long-term kind of climate resilience point that you are trying to make or that you did make, um, what's like an example of a climate resilience project that wealthier countries could invest in the region to reduce the likelihood that these droughts turn into food security crises? Sure. Uh, I'm of the view that we need to really look big picture. So there's a couple examples I can draw on. One is Somalia's national debt, which stands at $4.6 which is insignificant by global comparisons. If we look at the US bailed out banks that were making a lot of money to the tune of $700 billion in 2008. So Somalia's debt of $4.6 is nothing comparatively. Yet by having this debt, which was accrued pre-1991 collapse of government, they are restricted from accessing international financing, whether that's concessional loans, grants, other access to finance. So the international community pushes the Somali government to be doing more to respond, to provide services, to build relationships with citizens. But how can they do anything when they're totally restricted from accessing that international finance? If we look at just the interest alone exceeds entire tax collection, which is about 2% of GDP. So if we want to talk about broader systemic justice and also the ability to build resilience in, in Somalia, then we really need to take this issue of debt relief seriously. That's not something in the normal humanitarian sphere, but it's very much interconnected. If we shift towards Kenya, they have the, the Hunger Safety Net Program, which is a very ambitious and promising program to address uh, food insecurity throughout the country. But this needs to be better funded and reaching the most vulnerable more consistently and in a more timely fashion. So there we, we also need to look at various dimensions of, of inequality, you know, debt relief, all these other broader issues, rather than just going, okay, resilience programming, we're going to look at, you know, drought resistance, drought resistant agriculture, 
uh, how to manage livestock herds better. We need to look also much much more at the bigger picture. Uh, I guess finally, in in the coming weeks and months, what indicators will you be looking towards that might suggest to you uh, whether or not the situation will stabilize or deteriorate? Is it really just a function of whether or not donors step up and you know whether or not it starts to rain? Yeah, so there there are multiple early warning systems that have all basically been triggered in various ways. So the warnings are very much out there, and it is very much a case of the drought impact and the, the severity of the impacts is both predictable and preventable, and we really need to be aware of that. I don't want to be looking back in 2020, and nobody does, to be saying, oh, we said we'd never do it again, and here we've failed again. Uh, yet there is that very real risk. Uh, if we look at, at warning signs the next few months, there are rainfall patterns, uh, there's pasture co- coverage in different areas, um, the various systems and monitoring of UN OCHA, for example. So there are various mechanisms measuring everything, which is which is really, really important. And they all paint a, a gloomy warnings for the next few months, but then possibly an improvement towards the end of the year. But it's really it's really unpredictable. And also with the rain patterns particularly, we saw you know erratic rain patterns recently. There was some rain within May and June particularly. But then you know if that if you see that on a chart, it looks like in some areas above average rainfall. Then if you delve a bit deeper, some of that rainfall caused immense flooding and actually exacerbated humanitarian crises. So we had this bizarre occasion in in Somalia when the UN is releasing a drought response plan on the very same day, rele- releasing an appeal for 80 million for flood damage. So the, the the top line figures don't always capture these nuances. Everything is very fragile. And although maybe looking to possibly improve later in the year, it's really unknown. And we know in 2011, when you know the situation from June to July changed very dramatically, and all of a sudden there was famine. So I think it's much better off monitor everything, but also don't be afraid to act early and adopt a no regrets policy. Uh, Well, Dustin, thank you so much for your time and for bringing this to to my attention and and everyone's attention. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Mark, for taking the time and happy to discuss. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dustin. That was very helpful. And also, as I said at the outset, this was a kind of conversation you just like won't hear anywhere else on any other podcast will not bring you this kind of in-depth analysis uh, and accessible conversation uh, about a key issue in global affairs like this drought that is ongoing that could, uh, unless broader attention is paid, uh, turn into something far worse. So this is me trying to serve the mission of humanitarian affairs, I should say, by trying to draw attention to this issue. You know, I I like to have smart and interesting conversations uh, with interesting people in global affairs. I I really love doing this, but I also want to do more with the podcast, which is to bring these issues to wider attention. So thank you to those of you who are helping me on that mission and, and directly helping that mission by becoming premium subscribers. I so appreciate it. The show appreciates it. And you know, you're, you're helping the world. All right. Thank you. And we'll see you later. Bye.